Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Novogratz, and this is Next with Nova. All right, friends, it's Mike Novogratz. We're back with another episode, a special episode in Next with Novo. I've got Abby Fallick, a friend of mine. She runs Global Citizen Year. She's probably one of the country's experts, world's experts, on kids transitioning from high school to college, getting into college, taking a year off before college. And I tell you, this year, in the year of COVID, there has not been a worse year to be the parent of a senior in high school. Uh, the college admissions process felt random and crazy, and Abby's going to try to bring some some insight into what the hell happened. So, Abby, welcome. Thanks, Mike. I'm really delighted to be here. This is great. You know, a lot of the schools went uh, testing optional. There was a tremendous amount of grade inflation because, you know, people were working from home, and, you know, there was a lot of uh, inconsistencies amongst how different schools approached the COVID year. Um, it feels to me as a parent that it made the whole process uh, a lot more random. I'm not sure that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we have this meritocratic belief system, and so it felt awkward. Uh, give us a little insight on what happened. Yeah, well, I am not a college admissions expert, though um, they'd probably be delighted to be on your show and talk about the nuance and the detail and the ins and outs. And I'm, I'm grateful that that's not the, the hat I wear primarily. I will say from where I'm sitting, so you've got record numbers of applications to the most selective schools, in part because uh, the schools were forced to waive their their standardized test requirements because of COVID last year. Um, and there's some great media being put together around what this actually means, that for the first time, uh, Harvard and Yale weren't requiring SAT or ACT scores, which meant that students who wouldn't have thought that they had a shot might have aimed higher. And so you've got 50% increase in applications to the Ivy League schools, which means the process then on the other side looks a whole lot more random when these schools are selecting 3% or less of their admits uh, or of the, of the students who apply. Um, it's, it's just, it's a, a like a, a perfect storm, I think, of factors that are making this year feel like what I imagine it will be in hindsight, which is an inflection point or a breaking point potentially where we're gonna be forced to totally rethink everything we thought we knew about the transition after high school. So let's talk about gap years. That's how we first met, um, bridge years, gap years, what, whatever you wanna call them. You have built a business uh, bringing this service to tons of kids. Uh, how did it start? What was the, where did the idea come from? And kind of explain the philosophy and, and how it works. So we hate the term gap year for a number of reasons. I mean, the first is that it's exactly the wrong metaphor for what this year can be when it's done by design and not by default. So a gap suggests that you're falling into a hole and you might or might not come out of it. And, and we've really repurposed this year as a launch year or a purpose year, something that frankly fills in the gaps left by the other parts of your formal education. There's so many better terms and ways of thinking about 
the incredible potential of catching somebody as they come out of high school. So they've got the maturity to leave home, but they haven't fixed their values and identities yet. And, you know, whether you're, you had an experience joining the military service or in countries and cultures around the world that very deliberately have designed in some form of rite of passage, an experience outside your comfort zone with other young people you wouldn't have otherwise met, something that just really tests your mettle and helps you figure out who you are and who you want to become. It changes everything. So, you know, it's this has been my, my life's work. I am on a mission to create a new life stage for young people and to reorient this transition to be transformational. And it came from having been running on the treadmill of high school myself, and I'd been a good student, and I got into Stanford. We were sort of the, the brass ring, the gold ring, and you're like, yeah, but I don't know why I'm going. And and why would I go before I know why I'm there and what questions I'm trying to answer with my education? And I desperately wanted to find something like Global Citizen Year, and it didn't exist at the time. So in many ways, ever since I've been fixated on solving this problem societally, how do we plant a new idea in the culture that says you don't get into college until you've done something real in the world that shows that you can start something from scratch and inspire others to follow you and fail and rebound all the things you cannot learn in school, but that are essential to thriving in leadership. So as you know, I, I got involved, but Princeton has a thing called the bridge year that my wife and I got engaged in and have, have participated in funded and, and love. Um, and I think it's 10 years old now. And so there's all these cohorts of classes. And there were three things that came out of it that fascinated me. One is the kids that would come back. There are now 42 kids a year that go on this bridge year they develop like a complete bond, a cohort, like a, and, and so instead of like being a lacrosse player, they're bridge year kids and they have an identity. And so they come back with a social structure and a confidence just from having no, no people. Two is that a far greater majority of them than the normal Princeton kid pursue careers in social justice. But three they kick everyone's ass when they come back. Their scores are higher. They, you know, I, I was one of my, my good friends now, Kyle Berlin was a bridge year scholar at Princeton. He was the first valedictorian who was in the arts. He is one of the most unique individuals I've met and you know, he's going to do something wonderful. Um, but he, he credits the bridge year at kind of flipping, flipping the switch. And so I think it, 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 it is great. Um, did you think we could have, like, we think of bridge year or, you know, growth year, getting you ready for college, but it could be getting you ready for anything. So, you know, it's, it's less common, actually, that we get kids who didn't get into college and they sort of see this as a plan B. It's more common that we're attracting kids who know there's more to life than school. And there are kids who sit down to write their personal statement for college, and they're sort of like, I don't really know who I am yet or what I believe in or what questions I'm carrying when I get to college. 
And what's exciting, Mike, is so we started at Global Citizen Year the same year as Princeton's Bridge Year program. And I remember I was I was at business school at Harvard Business School cooking this concept up. It had taken me another 10 years since I initially had the idea to then feel like I was actually ready to launch it. And I'll say for me, business school was a great place to be entrepreneurial and sort of someone else's safety net. But somebody sent me a link to I think it was a New York Times press release that Princeton was setting up a program that would send some percentage of incoming freshmen to have a global year before they enrolled. And I thought, yes, proof of concept. Here is a school that doesn't have to do this, but they are choosing to invest in this year of global experience because they know it's going to yield better students at the other end. What was so compelling to me in that press release was the aspiration that it was going to be 10% of Princeton's incoming class. And I know for lots of reasons, it's not grown to that ambition or aspiration. But one of the things, Mike, you and I haven't talked much about yet because it's only in the last 12 months that we've pivoted. But Global Citizen Year ran for 10 years, a fellowship that looked very similar to Princeton's Bridge Year, um, quite resource intensive, totally transformative for 150 really exceptional kids a year. And in the time of COVID, when it wouldn't have been responsible to send kids around the world, we launched what's become Global Citizen Year Academy, which is accessible to kids from around the world. We've got 500 kids currently enrolled from 85 countries participating in a synchronous course about leadership. And we've built a model that is now flexible to scale to the size of the number of kids who want to do something different between high school and what comes next. So that's awesome. But isn't part of the experience leaving Poughkeepsie and ending up in Kigali? Or There's keto, nothing, or... nothing that replaces that lived experience. But here's how we see it. I mean, this year, kids weren't traveling and, and couldn't have. Uh, but as we open this up, Global Citizen Year becomes a layer of enrichment and purpose on top of whatever else you find yourself doing. So you might yeah. go to Kigali for the year, or you might be interning with a biotech startup, uh, or you might be taking some classes at community college to figure out what it is you want to do. But yeah. if you are enrolled with us, you're finding your people, you're connecting with other sparks of young people with high potential from around the world who are hopeful and determined about the future. And you are going through a process with us of being coached into figuring out what do you care about? Who are you? What gets you up in the morning when there's no alarm clock? Who do you want to be when nobody's looking? What questions do you need to answer to build a meaningful life? And we take you through that process. You've got a cohort yeah. of students, a course, a coach. We've got a leadership seminar where you're interacting with, I was just off the phone with, we're prepping with Sundar Pichai's group and we had Adam Grant on earlier this week where the students get to interact with just luminaries, leaders across industries and sectors who they really look up to and admire. And we sort of demystify the path from A to Z that isn't a straight line, but looks circuitous. It's, it's really just exposing them to a world beyond what they've known. So how do you, in giving advice, balance the the bike no regrets when I thought like, oh, just rent, rent a motorcycle and go to India and take pictures. That, what age does that make more sense versus a little bit of structure? Uh, or is it kid by kid? I mean, I definitely think it's kid by kid. Um, I was certainly 
in the category of allergic to anything that felt overly programmed or that it was going to somehow stifle my independence or freedom. And so we've walked this line at Global Citizen Year in making sure that we're providing the right amounts of structure. There's so many programs that you can sign up for and pay a lot for that will coddle your kid and basically insulate them from all the hard parts of traveling. And that's not the experience that's going to be most formative at the end of the day. But you also want some assurance that that your kid's um, sort of directed and has a couple of supports around them, which is how, you know, I spent a year during college in Latin America on my own. I went with a slip of paper and a backpack and a book of Portuguese verbs and showed up in Salvador, Bahia, Brazil to navigate my own way. I give my parents a lot of credit for having had the confidence to let me do it. But I learned so much by trial and error, but there was also so much I didn't learn because all I saw was what I like stumbled upon as opposed to having the context and a cohort of peers and a coach to guide me through it and a curriculum that I was following. So that's been the core principle at at Global Citizen Year from a pedagogy perspective is we don't learn when we're in our comfort zone. We also don't learn when we're in our panic zone. We learn yeah. when we're stretched. And so we see our job as catching kids in this crucial developmental transition and holding them in their stretch zone in a way that is not comfortable by design, but it forces you to grapple with that discomfort in a way that you might not have experienced before. Well, it was also interesting what my son and I both learned in that experience was there are not a lot of 16 and 17 year olds that travel by themselves or in any in groups, unless they're in structured groups, where there are a lot of 19 and 20 year old backpackers and college kids, you know, Australians taking their, their walkabout year, uh, whatever. And so there probably is some age too, where maturity just makes it a little easier. Parents are a little less worried. Definitely an age thing, but there's a cultural thing too, because it's interesting you just said, you know, you, you, when we travel, we see Australian kids and Israeli kids. I think there's something about how uh, parenting in the U.S., people, you know, talk described as helicopter parenting for so long. And I've now seen a description of snowplow parenting, which is essentially like be a step ahead of your kid in clearing the obstacles and when we zoom out, Abby, I'm, out. I'm, I'm writing a book at one point. It'll be my like ninth book that I say I'm going to write that I've never yeah. written yeah. called light, called light touch parenting. Good. Love uh, it. Yes. I, yes. I have had a very, uh, very strong philosophy that you should set almost no rules. And if your kid falls off the, the table, push them back on. But uh, <laughs> I am of your, I am in right there with you. Maybe I'll, I'll write it with you, um, Mike, because I'm a huge believer. Both I watch myself parenting my young boys who are four and six. Uh, it's, it is it is light touch for sure. But I also think that's been our approach at Global Citizen Year, which is let's not be one of those overly structured experiences that kids, frankly, have had too many of. Let's create the right context for you to have an experience again. That's stretches you and that forces you to grapple with uh, the uh, being responsible for your own decisions and those consequences. And you may fall down and you can get back up. But so much of high school right now is oriented around this high stakes game of getting into a selective college where you're not allowed to fail. 
You're often not allowed to experiment. Like you can't get a B. And when we've set that world up, we're reinforcing these behaviors that say conformity matters more than originality, uh, that checking the boxes matters more than experimentation. And, you know, when you think about the people you're most excited to work with or hire or talk to, it's people who found their power and agency to work outside the bounds of that system. And so I just think we need to totally rethink what the purpose of school is. And I think time will tell. Did this increase access for kids who traditionally haven't had the opportunity? Does it increase equity and social mobility by letting a bunch of kids in who wouldn't, again, have otherwise had the opportunity in the past? I just heard somebody uh, describing a, a vision for making higher ed more equitable and, and more about sort of upending inequality as opposed to maintaining a system of, of, of privilege and division. And, and the proposal was, imagine if Harvard, a, a criteria for admission into any of these elite schools was that your parents did not go to college essentially just changing the game completely. And, and I say this because we're sitting in this moment where, uh, you know, one era of the world has ended and the next hasn't. It's beginning to emerge. But it, it, the disruption that's occurring across every industry and sector and certainly in, you know, the businesses that you're a part of, Mike, like that higher education is on the cusp of revolutionary change as well. And you've got increasing number of employers who don't require a college degree in the same way. You've got the varsity blues scandal that shone a spotlight on the length that parents have been willing to go to get their kids into these elite schools. And my hunch is that by the time my kids, who right now are four and six years old, finish high school, college will not be the only or expected option for them. We need new pathways and they're starting to emerge. Well, listen, I when I found out that we had 4,327 colleges in America, I couldn't comprehend it. And I remember I looked at some ranking system of like, okay, what's the 150th best college? Uh, and that year it was Oklahoma State. I have a lot of friends from Oklahoma State because of the wrestling world. And I was like, Oklahoma State's a good school. It's a big state school. You get a good degree. But I was like, wow, if that's 150, I wonder what looks like 600 or 800 or 1,000 or 2,000. Um, and we have a lot of kids taking on a lot of debt to go to because they were told they needed a college degree. So at the same time that we're seeing these record application numbers to the most selective schools, call it about 20 schools nationwide, everyone else is struggling to enroll, meet their enrollment numbers and to get enough kids to apply. So people are going to choose with their checkbooks and with their decisions about their next steps. But I anticipate that in the next five years, half of those other schools are not going to make it through this shock that was sort of long cooking, but then dramatically accelerated by, by COVID. And particularly at a moment when everybody saw that from one day to the next, these elite schools were able to make their teaching and learning accessible via the internet uh, without constraints. So you can suddenly see the sort of artificial scarcity that the elite schools create, but that, that any kid anywhere in the world has access to at least the knowledge part of an education online totally changes the game in thinking about 
what's worth paying for? Is it worth four years of my life and all of the debt that I would then have out the other end? Not to mention that 11% of employers think that kids with college degrees are prepared for the workforce. There are these disconnects. And then we're cramming it all up against the front end, you know, the first 24 years of your life as though learning isn't this lifelong practice that needs to follow you over the course of the rest of your life. And I am not anti-college. I just think that the price and the value and the relevance need to all be totally rethought in a way that centers equity, that makes sure that more kids who haven't had this opportunity in the past have it. But it also reorients around, okay, what components of that experience you just described need to happen on a four-year campus where somebody's paying $85,000? Like, is a freshman dorm the place where we want to help young people orient to who they are and who they want to become? I mean, Higher education colleges are set up essentially to train future professors, but there are so many other ways of helping young people have experiences that are going to help them develop things that I know you value about resilience and adaptability and innovation and grit. And, and these things are hard, if not impossible, to develop sitting in a lecture hall. There are a lot of kids out there, I hope some listen to this podcast, that are like, oh, what just happened to me? Like, what's your advice to the kid that really thought, I worked so goddamn hard in high school and I was going to go to Georgetown and I didn't get in, or I was going to go here and I was didn't get in. Uh, what's, what's the advice? You're now, put yourself in the mother's shoes. You'll be there in 14 years. So I would say for any kid who has just gotten turned down from their top choice schools, don't take it personally. It's a random lottery. These schools, as Mike just said, could have enrolled their class many times over. It is not a reflection of you, your worth, or your potential. So take this as an opportunity. Step off the conveyor belt. Check out Global Citizen Year if you're interested in looking for a way to find people like you and to go through a process of figuring out how to become the kind of person you really want to be, how to reach your potential, how to know your power, and the rest will flow from there. Whether you go straight to college after that or not, it actually matters less than being deliberate about how you use this window of opportunity. Awesome. Abby, you're doing awesome work. I am thrilled that to have watched you kind of grow this organization, grow yourself, grow your sense of mission and real passion over the last 10 years thanks for being on next with novo we're going to get this one out quick because I, there are a lot of kids out there that are scratching their heads so i'm glad we were able to put this together quick friends that's it for next with novo thanks mike awesome abby thanks so much that was fun